So welcome to this week's episode of Leaders on a Mission, where I'm joined by inspiring leaders driven by the impact of creating a healthy and sustainable world. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Andre Menezes, co-founder and CEO of NextGen Foods. Now, NextGen Foods, they're on a mission to deliver exceptionally tasty plant-based foods, making it easy for consumers to do good for the planet. And uh, Andre, thanks so much for giving up your time and coming on the show today. It is my pleasure to be here with you, Simon. Now, tell me, Andre, well, where did it all, tell me a little bit, little bit around, I'm thinking about your early upbringing, but I'm thinking specifically around some of the key forces that really helped shape and, you know, shape you and shape your main influences. Sure. Um, I guess since I was born, pretty much, or at least as far as I can remember, uh, I has I have always been incentivized to to question paradigms and not take uh, not to take anything for granted. Just you know to develop that ability to criticize whatever is being put in front of me, but not on a negative way. Um, you know, saying everything is wrong and it shouldn't be this way, but in a very constructive manner. Um, well, if it's not right, it's not the way I would like or if i believe that's not the right way for that specific circumstance i have been always incentivized to solve for that problem right so since i was a little kid uh, my mom was always incentivizing me to do that and there are countless examples of crazy uh things that i have done from the age of four five six whatever um including for example starting my first company when i was 12 uh i was doing web design for a car dealership simply because I knew how to do it, you know, that back then in the 90s, website, you know, websites were something new for smaller companies and it was starting to, to get um, really used by larger ones. And no one told me I couldn't do it. So that, that ability to, well, to do, why not? And I can do it, let me, let me go and do it, uh, was something that was always part of my uh, bringing. And I would, you know, I would connect that very strongly with the entrepreneurial spirit that's basically what you do as an entrepreneur. Um, no one said that can't be done, or even many people will tell you it can be, cannot be done, but you form your opinion based on the fundamental values of the world, the fundamental challenges, and then you uh, work on making that architecture of a solution around that problem and moving ahead. That's something that I, I would say I'd be carrying through my life, um, and it's been very helpful, and I've seen that coming alive in many times, in particular as we grow our business. Uh, globally right now great no no absolutely and um and well so tell me a little bit about where where did you grow up actually where where were you uh i was born um um my family is italian and brazilian kind of half half uh but i was born and raised in brazil um spent 27 years of my life if i'm not mistaken there uh with with a few years uh, in, the, in the middle of that in Germany, like uh, about, not a few years, I mean, about a year in total in Germany, slightly less, um, in two occasions, one for work, one for studying. And after that, I spent uh, time in Singapore from 20, January 2016 until earlier uh, this year in 2022. Um, and then now I'm here in, in, in the US, in Chicago. So yeah. Uh, South America, North America, Europe, and Asia so far. <laughs> very, very, uh, so, so very, uh, so very international. And uh, so, tell me, like, when you finish your degree, right? You you got a bachelor in mechanical engineering. Well, at that point, 
you know, what, what did you foresee for your, you know, your, your future, your career at that point? No, that's a great question. And uh, it was very interesting. First, uh, why did I decide to go to like study mechanical engineering, right? Today, I just, I, I hate <laughs> the activity of uh, being an engineer, uh, although I do think a lot like an engineer and it's there. I'm a problem solver. I like efficiency and I like designing systems. And what actually, you know, was it? Drawing me into it back then is my love for cars and, you know, uh, factories and cars and everything that moves and airplanes. So those things to me had a strong link with mechanical engineering. So I went and decided to study it. And when I was like kind of in the middle of the process, in the middle of the of the learning <laughs> that period, I realized that was not exactly what I was learning in the in university, obviously, as it happens with most people. And I decided that you know, yes, I do have passion for all of those things, but that's not what an engineer is doing most of his or her time. Uh, and what I was always very passionate about as well was business. And then I decided to start a company um, back then, which I did, and my father still runs it today. That was in 2008, um, seven, eight. And then I, um, I also decided that the normal let's just call it like the the regular path of you know finishing his studies going to a static career that's pre-drawn by someone wouldn't fit me be in a corporation be on a consultancy or anything i decided to go after the fundamentals of what um our society is structured on economic sense developed a career and plug that's what i like what do i mean by all that right uh, to me, there are a few clear profiles. You have a profile of an executive, like typical top management of companies that you can become one after usually decades of uh, working with a multinational company. Um, you could be an entrepreneur, right? And then you start a business, grow it, scale, whatever. And then the investor. Obviously, I'm overly simplifying, but basically those three key uh, pillars or routes for me, um, I could choose one classically speaking, but I decided that my goal would be to learn a little bit of each, form a more, a wider view from the get-go, have an exposure to all that, and then, um, you know, uh, try and, and, and deliver and have the opportunity of building up on each one of them, understand what I like the most, but try to ultimately come up with a combination of learnings that would allow me to think like an investor, like an executive, and like an entrepreneur, right. and act combining those things um, as I would grow in my career. Um, that actually is what I decided when I was finishing my studies and I went to a private equity and I did exactly that. As a private equity, started developing that investor view. And then I went to you know a company, a multinational company, starting developing that management view, that executive view. What does it take? I have grown my uh, career all the way from being, um, you know, just an operator, small level leadership, uh, lower level leadership, all the way to becoming a CEO of a joint venture. Uh, really learned a lot in that process and decided that it was time for me to then go back to my entrepreneurial routes and take everything I've learned and do the second route of entrepreneurial routes. As I said, I have started business before, but this time I would do it differently. I would do you know, leveraging all the knowledge I have accumulated over these years. And that's when I decided to take the leap of leaving that career that was very successful um, and start something new, which is now Next Gen Foods and Tindall. 
Excellent. And, and I was going to say, what, 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 um, just before you took that step, you know, what, what were the major things, you know, that, you know, what, what, why did you take that step? What was it that you had kind of learned or developed, you know, why next gen foods as it were? And, uh, how did that come about? Oh, it's a combination. It's a great question. Um, I think I'm not, I'm not a good uh, person to, to be part of a multinational or corporation. I'm just not. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And I have learned also in this journey to respect the multinational corporations and their executives. And a lot of people think they are, <laughs> you know, uh, very negative in many aspects because they're slower and they're full of internal politics and so on. But I have also learned to admire what, what that's for and what it means and how those businesses were built over time to become what they are, driving forces um, of society and employing thousands and, uh, and thousands of people. So I have learned that, but I've also learned enough to realize that's not for me. And what do I mean by that? I have not, I don't like the, the boundary thinking. So that's your box, that's your role, that's responsibility. This is what you have. This is your budget. This is what you can do. This is what you cannot do. I have always uh, preferred thinking wider and broader. And even as a CEO of one of those companies, you have a much more limited um, ability to drive the things that you want to do uh, versus when you start, uh, when you're designing something you're on your own, right? So that was the, the main reason behind the leap. And I also had um, clear confidence that for one, um, I was able with everything I I had learned back then to come up with you know, a business model that could make sense and that uh, my risk was very low. You know, personally speaking, uh, no kids, good financial reserves. Um, you know, I had, uh, I, I, I was pretty confident, you know, if something go wrong, I would have the ability to fall back into a corporate career anytime or anything like that. So it was, it was the perfect moment. Yes, it was not easy because I was giving up a path that was very bright and successful by any measure you could think of. But at the same time, uh, it was the best moment to do it. And I could just do it. And I also felt it was time and, you know, just to focus on that, the passion, the drive, the, 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 the mission behind the category. And this is when things start shaping up from moving from my own ambition to have an entrepreneurial journey to a journey then in plant-based, doing a force for good and transforming, trying to make an impact in the world. That's when the whole thing started to shape up. And that's how Next Gen Foods was born with both myself and Timo uh, as co-founders of the business. Uh, with a very similar shared vision around it. Where did you meet Timo then? In my previous uh, journey, when I was running that distribution company, um, I started bringing um, plant-based products from, from the world to Singapore. And one of the products I decided to bring was Timo's previous company's product. Uh, it was called Like Meat, and that's how we got to know each other. We were introduced back then by Rohit, who was... Uh, with the Masek back then, and then decided to join as a CFO later. We were introduced by Rohit. I brought his product scene. I really liked We We got along very well with each other. And um, we were both, you know, I was living in Singapore, decided to leave my, my career to start something new. And he was selling his business. So it was, a, and he was moving to Singapore. 
So we were, it was serendipity really. Um, both of us in Singapore in March, trying to start something in plant based with complementary backgrounds. It was really perfect. And that's how it all kicked off. Oh, that's great. That's great. So tell us a little bit about, you know, NextGen and, um, you know, what you guys do and what the focus of the business is. Sure. Um, at NextGen Foods, we started to really, if you put it broadly, just to make, you know, understanding that we have a massive issue with the food system in the world. It's one of the largest contributors to, after energy, one of the largest contributors to climate change. Um, if we keep the trend of what we're doing in terms of how we feed the population as we've been doing for decades. Uh, there won't be enough resources um, to, to continue that trend, number one. And then obviously the impact on climate change is really bad. So we started from that understanding and then said, okay, fine, but how can we make a positive dent on that, on that space? And we decided that for us to make that happen, we would have to make saving the planet a pleasure, not a pain. So how can we come with the best food, with the best food experience, with the best communication, with you know, the best business model that would be not asking people to compromise or give up what they love, but truly, um, truly giving something new that's exciting, um, that's equally good, if not even better, uh, without the process that has been used for thousands of years as a technology of transforming grains and water into meat, which in this case today is an animal. How can we do that with uh, modern technology, taking the animal out of the equation? That's how we started. And that's, that's why we did it in great. the beginning. Yeah, no, great. Um, and, um, oh, it's, it's, and, and talk to me a little bit about the, the journey, for instance. So this was around 2000 and. 19 was it or um yeah the first month of the company was april 2020 if you recall not a great time to start a company and the world was literally melting with covid the height of covid crisis we were in lockdown uh, but that's when we started the company and um the journey since then has been very interesting because we were very clear since the beginning on how we should put together everything we've learned in our lives as a business model, and then what we would seek for in that business model. What is our business model like? What is the product? What's the technology? What's the brand? How is the communication? Who are we talking to? And then how are we going to scale this? Uh, what is our uh, structure and strategy around footprint, about production, distribution, go to market? So we designed all of that in 2020. Um, we did raise back then uh, $10 million seed round uh, pre-launch. And then we launched in Singapore, Tindo for the first time, plant-based chicken in March, 2021 in Singapore. So not very long ago, if you think about it. And we started a journey of expanding internationally. Our journey 2021 was about testing that if our business model that we designed in 2020 made sense, or if needed tweaks, will the brand work? Would the, the product work? Would people like it? You know, would the financials make sense? Can we scale that up? Can we have that working from Europe to Asia, just like to get that feeling from consumers? And we're very positive with everything we've seen. So much so that we then decided it was time for us to, to prepare for the following step of the journey. So design, test, the following one, which is, the year of 2022 would be to open 
the markets of the US, UK, and Germany, which is what um, we've done this year. We launched in those three markets uh, throughout 2022, and we will keep that journey as a next step. What we foresee is channel expansion, so definitely bringing products into groceries in the US, UK, and Germany. And then who knows? Uh, the future will tell us what to do, but we are confident we can replicate all of that and expand into further categories as well, other than plant-based chicken. Uh, that's our kind of five-year top-line design plan, and so far we have executed on it. Wow. A lot within uh, just over two years, two and a half years. Amazing. Yeah. So I was saying since our launch, like, what, one and a half years ago, slightly more than that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In yeah. Singapore. Yeah. Why we Singapore, were... first of all? Singapore is becoming increasingly a global hub for food tech. It has its own its own reasons. Uh, you know, Singapore imports over 93% of its food, and it wants to become uh, self 30% self-sufficient by 2030. And uh, if you do the math, you will see that you cannot do that in Singapore with the land that Singapore has by um, feeding pigs and you know pork and, and beef to, to the population. It just, it's impossible, literally not feasible. There's no land, there's no water, there's no nothing to, to, to make that happen. Yeah. Therefore, from that angle, Singapore is investing heavily in developing an ecosystem there. We were exposed to Singapore for long enough, especially me, um, that we understand that Singapore, when it sets itself to become something, it does. Um, and then we could see that that would become reality very soon. Um, and that's what's happening right now. Singapore today, if you ask anyone in the sector, people will say Singapore is a leader in this space. Back then in 2019, 2020, it was just a desire, but now I could say categorically that Singapore became uh, already recognized as a as a driving force in this space. Yeah, absolutely. You can certainly see a couple of weeks ago they had the food, the world ag tech and the food future food tech out in Singapore, and it was yeah. it was clearly an event that I'm definitely going to go to next year. Um, you know, it was uh, you know I've heard great things about the event, so. Interesting. And also, obviously, the regulatory pathway as well for a lot of the kind of cell-based um, um, uh, options as well is uh, is moving ahead really quickly as well, isn't it? It is. It's the only country right now that can actually sell and consume plant-based, uh, sorry, uh, cell-based products. And yeah. uh, Singapore is showing how, how it can be done as a path to the entire world and, and not holding itself to existing paradigms and really coming from a very pragmatic perspective. Uh, what is what is this technology? What is behind it? Um, you know, all the safe, um, the safety boundaries around it and very technical perspective and then approving for it to be sold to consumers and produced. Um, obviously, cell-based is still a long way, but the fact that Singapore is the first and the only country that has done that um, shows how serious they are about it. Yeah, yeah. I love your business model as well. Tell me a little bit about the channel and the business model and how you came to that route, as it were. Um, we um, There are two big things when I talk about the business. One, uh, on the business that is less seen, we are a completely asset-light business model. So we haven't built our own factories or distribution. We have focused on where we believe our intellectual property is more valuable, beyond the development of the products and ingredients and processes and so on. 
be on the development communication of the brand, be on the management um, of how to scale this business globally. So we started with that, being very focused and asset light, very efficient on the, on the business model. But then what that has translated to is that we have taken a go-to-market strategy in which we decided to one, go global, because we do believe that uh, climate change is not a local phenomenon. And we do believe that there is space for a, a global uh, player to become extremely significant in this space. Um, so global was one of the definitions. And two, we wanted to make sure we could break a paradigm that plant-based foods are tasteless cardboards being served for uh, vegans and vegetarians. We wanted to make sure it was exciting, nutritious, uh, delicious, juicy for meat, you know, um, and that could get anyone, regardless if a vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or meat lover, or a carnivore, um, that could get anyone excited about it. So with that, we decided to bring to the highest level of culinary experience and credibility. That means starting with only restaurants and some of the Michelin stars and highly trendy restaurants around the globe, um, moving obviously to their chains and making it more um, accessible and uh, available gradually. First with on-premise, meaning restaurants, um, and then in the future, we'll bring it to, to shops and retail shops as well, supermarkets. Great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, so tell me about, I mean, the challenge of getting it tasting really good. I know you've got some proprietary kind of technology as it relates to aroma or as it relates to taste so tell me a little bit about that kind of journey about getting a really fantastic product yeah very good point it all starts by uh, frankly understanding um, why do we love chicken why is chicken so good and we don't really love chicken because it's a bird we don't leave, we don't love chicken because it has feathers and beaks and it's, you know, roaming around freely. We love chicken because it's the meat is fibrous. Um, the taste is a chickeny taste when you cook, which comes from chicken fat. And because frankly, it's extremely exciting. You can make anything in any cuisine using chicken um, that would be extremely different, versatile and delicious. So it's the only um, land animal meat that you can actually find in any culture, in any gastronomy. It doesn't matter if you're in Japan, China, Middle East, Brazil, US, Europe, anywhere in Europe, chicken is always there, right? So, and it's the only one. Uh, many places in the world, be by preference, be by restriction, won't eat pork or beef, uh, but that's not the case for, for chicken. Um, unless you're vegetarian, obviously, but uh, chicken is always around. And for us, the question was, what is it then about chicken? Right. So the fiber structure, the, te the texture is a fundamental aspect. Whenever you talk about meat, uh, about chicken, you were expecting it to be fibrous. So we uh, looked at the existing technologies um, and we see what do we know how to do, what do we dominate and what needs to be improved so we can deliver much better than anyone has done with a technology that's not uh, lab scale, only a technology that's scalable, that can develop and deliver that fiber structure. So we look at extrusion in details and we figure out how to do that, number one. Number two, 
we looked at the taste. So where is this taste coming from? Where is this chickeny uh, note, uh, smell, the brownie when you cook? All of it is related to chicken fat. I mean, and that explains why uh, chicken legs and wings are juicier and better tasting by most standards than chicken breast. Uh, so we said, okay, fine, chicken fat is a definition. What is it about chicken fat that makes it so special? And we did study in depth as well. Again, how do we, what is it about it, right? So when is it seen? When is it felt? When you can smell it? When can you taste it? Which is very different from a beef burger, for example. You can see the crumbles of white fat on a beef burger. Mm. If it's a marble steak, you can see it's there. For chicken, you don't see it or you don't want to see it as well because it's not, uh, not how we like chicken to be. Um, except for the skin, obviously, but we don't have the skin yet. But um, we realize it's within the fibers. It's well distributed. It smells. There are different touch points when you're cooking, when it's raw, when you're cooking, when you're uh, eating, when you're biting into it, that you want all of this to be delivered. Different temperatures, different places, in your mouth, you know, in a pan. And we design an emotion that we call lippy that is basically using non-GMO ingredients, but the process of creating it is a secret that we, uh, it's that lippy that uh, delivers on all of the aspects I've just seen, just said, right? Within the fibers, number two then. And then number three, uh, chicken is not chicken if it's not versatile. So a steak, um, you just want it. If you're a meat lover, you just want a steak to have salt and pepper and at most, right? Uh, in some places only salt, like Brazil, for example. Um, but that's not the case for chicken. Chicken, you want it to have is a spicy sauce, fried, coated, different sorts of coating on a sandwich. And we realized we couldn't just come with a product that was simply a chicken nuggets. It had to have that full versatility of chicken. That's what we've done. That's how we started Tinder. That's what got... Um, everyone's so excited about it from the beginning. And, and then from there, I was basically looking and learning and developing uh, on it. Great. No, thank you. It sounds, uh, it sounds wonderful. I'd love to taste it. In fact, I saw, having a little look through, because you've launched in the UK now, and it seems that uh, you've got some really good coverage in the UK having a look through. Absolutely. Uh, we're still only in restaurants, but... Um, in the UK, I think we're north of 250 places serving, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and very cool, iconic ones like the Pastor Norser Chop House, which is the place you wouldn't expect to find plant-based, and it's, all, it's delicious. Um, and then also, obviously, BrewDog and many others, like we have in our website, tina.com uh, slash find. You can find it near you, but it's incredible. It's delicious, and UK, it's very well covered. No, great. Um, wonderful. So tell me just a couple of things. At what point do you decide to take it from the, um, you know, the restaurants, select restaurants into the grocery channel? At what point do you make the inflection? Yeah, for us, since the beginning, the reason why we started with restaurant is not because it's easier, because it's not. It's not faster. It's not easier. Chefs are notoriously hard to, to um, excite. And um, we knew that we needed as well consumers to see and try in a setup at the highest level of culinary experience 
to understand that this is not a cardboard, this product is delicious, right? And just like the chicken we all love, you know, it's it's extremely versatile, it's delicious, and someone that uh, something that anyone can enjoy. So we started with that, and we've been communicating very actively with all the partners we have, and having people to try, incentivizing trial basically with the partners, the restaurants. Um, obviously, they're clients, so it's a commercially validated model. People are actually buying, and that grows demand, and that shows the growth, and there's excitement around. But every time they're eating, they're also getting familiar with the product, with the brand, and they realize it's great. And to your question, when is the inflection point? It's by the moment we have seen that enough people have tasted and tried and, you know, they spoke about it. They have created that first credibility of the brand. Then we're going to migrate it to the groceries, um, you know, and, and that, that, that won't be something completely new and unheard of. That could be just another cardboard tasting product. That's not the case. And people will know that that's not the case once you go to the groceries. That's the strategy. It's, it's not easy. It's, uh, it takes a bit of time, but for us, it's also very powerful. And we're getting ready to reach that stage right now. Yeah, no, great. So there's a lot of validation required, right? These chefs, as you say, they're difficult to, um, you know, you know, to get them on board and to, you know, they're fussy, right, by, by nature. So it has to be a fantastic product for them to want to bring it onto their menus, right? Absolutely. I think anyone who has ever tried to sell any product to a chef would know <laughs> that is not easy. Uh, but also when they buy, it means it's really good. Yeah. Right. So that, that's very powerful for us. It was a lot of validation when we've seen the excitement from the chefs, what they could do with it and the performance that then led to consumers uh, being extremely happy. Um, yes, a lot of work, uh, but at the same time, I would say extremely fulfilling, extremely gratifying to see it. Um, and also very powerful. We have also, one thing we've done during this process is that now we have thousands of restaurants serving Tindo and obviously millions of occasions of consumers eating, uh, buying it to eat it. Um, and then we're collecting back, uh, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, we're collecting it insight and detail of how are people liking Tindo the most? What are the most common dishes in each region? What is the difference? How is it appreciated or not? And then we're using that to help developing the groceries, the products for groceries, making sure we can um, have that experience in home linked to all the great things we're seeing on the restaurants so they can bring that great experience home. Yeah, great. And um, and is it the plan to remain asset light as you grow and you develop and you, you scale the company? Uh, for now, yes. While we're in the phase of very accelerated growth. Mm. Um, we believe it's a, it's a better strategy that allows us as management to be more focused on the challenge of growing the business. Um, but in the future, um, if one day we decide that that's an interesting move to be considered, we can always consider. I think as part of that entrepreneurial journey and the reason why we, we do it is because we have the ability together with our board and our shareholders to evaluate any scenario and if one day it makes sense, we can always review. Uh, but right now, given the fast pace of growth we're having and uh, the effort it takes to to build, you know, globally a company from from zero so quickly, um, we prefer to keep asset light to have management focused, uh, extremely laser focused uh, on on our development of the 
channels and the growth with consumers around the world. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So how many people work for you? Like, what headcount do you have? About 70. 70. And um, and you closed the Series A, right? Am I right in thinking? Or, or... Yeah, we, we closed 130 million to date in total, being 10 on the seed. Then we extended with another 20 on that seed. Um, then we did around 100 million on uh, Series A, which was announced um, earlier this year in February. Got it. So that, that's is that one of the largest Series A in the space? I, I, the, just can't, I can't recall. The largest. Anything, anything yeah. Largest bigger. seed and largest A in the world for this space. Right. Okay. No, great. Great stuff. Uh, and just tell me, I mean, yeah, what, what, what are the long-term dreams and vision when you think about the company? Um, for us, it's all about causing the most uh, significant impact uh, by transforming the food system and doing that without telling people to give up what they love. Um, but, but at the same time, going deeply understanding what they really love. And as I said, what they really love from a chicken in that example is not the bird. They love the taste, texture, and everything can be cooked with chicken. So that's how we think. And our goal would be ultimately to uh, accelerate the transition to a more sustainable food system by scaling, by, you know, giving this new chicken a name, um, Tingo, that people recognize globally as being the, the chicken that, you know, comes without a bird and it's as good as the, the one that comes from a bird, uh, number one. And then as we build that structure, develop all the channels and have it all built to why not uh, venturing to new categories as well, um, eventually. So that's the goal for our company to maximize as much as possible the impact by creating a globally uh, leading players in, in chicken um, and then eventually leveraging all that was built to expand into other categories. And by doing that, increasing the impact we can have in this place, in this world. Great. No, no, great stuff. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, the sector's been in the news recently. I mean, looking at the plant-based world and seeing the, the, you know, the ups and downs of it. Currently, it seems and appears that we're in a bit of a downtrend at the moment. If you look at the likes of uh, Beyond Meat share price and, um, you know, it just seems that the plant-based sector's hit a bit of a road at the moment, a um, bit of, uh, sorry, a, um, a hump in the road. Well, yeah, what, what's your view on where we are on the journey at the moment? Uh, just that, a hump in the road. Uh, I think the... I like to think of the fundamentals and the long-term fundamentals of the category have not changed. If anything, they became stronger. Um, and, and what do I mean by that? And they became stronger in all the terms related to, you know, the urgency of having a less um, harmful food system. Uh, but at the same time, with the last two years, we have seen how meat um, it's becoming more expensive, how inflation hits meat so hard and how um, it's a matter of time when, you know, um, resources are becoming more expensive, um, that meat consumption will not necessarily start to decline in terms of great growth rate and eventually even not be able to, to grow at all simply because there won't be resources. The price will be outrageous and consumers will have to reduce that on the diet. So fundamentally, it's only stronger for both ends from the end of the urgency of having a more sustainable food system, but also from the clearer and clearer 
fact that meat is not the answer that's out there um when, what's happening right now from my point of view is a it's not the end of plant-based i would say it's the end of the beginning of plant-based when you had that um extremely high um elevated hype cycle if you look at the gardner cycle the curve you will see that you know maybe it was um overly hyped in terms of expectation and saying like you know this is going to take over 15% of the of the meat market in 3 years right that's not that's not going to happen that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, over 200 you know, meat market's 1.4 trillion dollars uh plant base is only slightly more than 1. something percent today um and it's not going to get to 10 or 15% in 1 2 3 years but and i guess what happened is that there was an expectation that that was going to be the case and obviously that's not the case and there is a bit of a over depression on that not being that explosive um silver bullet transformation that's number one number two uh, many products don't really perform uh and that leads many people who are reading about it and excited you know excited about it they went to the supermarkets they bought the products cooked it have a terrible experience and went back to meat so but you had a lot of trial coming from that first first trial right and then you had a sales going up uh momentarily but what's happening right now you're exhausting the that first trial rate you know a lot of people already tried or whoever had to try for the first time in this specific time moment in time has already tried um and that that by itself brings a reduction but what we're seeing beyond that is that for products that are delivering for restaurants that are doing well especially restaurants that are fully plant based or restaurants that are more progressive for example burger king um very innovative in in austria they did in london uh, for a month and then switzerland and germany with a very strong execution of plant based options and that's showing very very strong growth across uh, the world and we see that when well executed plant based is there the repetition rates are high the number of outlets are increasing the quality of products increasing so basically to me all that's happening right now in short is that end of the first hype cycle and uh filtering off all the terrible stuff that's been tried for only once for only one time and then now it's entering the phase of really sustained uh growth um that's my assessment yeah and uh that's what we work hard for every day to make sure that this is this is the case as well yeah yeah well it comes back to your uh, point when you talked you spoke about the product needing to be fabulous from a taste and texture viewpoint so it's almost like there's a no compromise so i go in there and order the tinder i'm not i'm not ordering it as a um as a replacement i, I you know it's a preferred product essentially right that's that's yeah. the way forward we've got to be honest with ourselves as a category and realize that today and hopefully that's going to change in the future but today the amount of people who are actively thinking about saving the world when they're buying food it's very small um uh, 1 to 5% maybe of the general population most people when they're buying food they're actually buying food because it's delicious and that's it they do not accept any compromise and we need to be realistic and pragmatic about it because that's what we need to deliver 
You know, um, we need to deliver something that doesn't compromise what they're seeking and consumers are seeking that delicious experience. And they will be happy to um, buy if they know that that on top of being delicious, it is also more sustainable or healthy or there's no uh, animal involved. But they will not compromise on taste and texture. And we need to be pragmatic about it. And that's how we see it. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for that. Thank you. Tell me, um, just to finish off with, just giving some thought, um, as a CEO uh, of Next Gen Foods, uh, co-founder and CEO, you know, what, what, what's been, um, you know, I suppose my question is, yeah, what, what, you know, what, what do you think has been the biggest challenge that you've had to face with it? Um, I guess different from my previous journey, uh, it's not the first time I'm a CEO of a company, but different from my previous journey, my, my job literally changes every three months uh, at the rate that we're growing. You know, uh, 20 months ago, we didn't have a product out there and being sold in the market. Now we are in nine countries in over 1.5 thousand restaurants and, you know, preparing for expansion to groceries. Um, and then we, you know, we had a team of five. Now we have a team of 70 around nine countries. So um, the challenge in this journey um, has been how to, you know, constantly evolve as a company and the team to get everyone always rolling in the same direction, always pushing ahead across different time zones, across different market realities, and be able to come that authentic great delivery across different markets and build up this global player that we're seeing coming alive in the US, in the UK, in Germany, Netherlands, Singapore, and many other places. So um, that is new for me and I guess new for anyone uh, and has been obviously been challenging, but at least so far, it's proven not to be impossible and we're getting excellent reception and development in parallel across those markets. That's definitely the number one. Um, but I guess... That's internal looking, right? Mm-hmm. But as a CEO and looking externally, I guess the number one challenge for anyone in this category is how do we collectively as a category drive the growth of the category? How do we incentivize uh, in terms of product performance, education, policies, anything that could enable this very urgent need for us to have a more sustainable food system to accelerate faster. That's the biggest challenge for um, any company. Um, and if that, by the moment there is that explosion, uh, great products will do great, good products will do good, and even regular products will also do good because there is an explosion. But if that explosion doesn't happen um, it, or it just takes too long, uh, it, will, it will be a battle, it will be an uphill battle for any company to to grow and that's something that we cannot afford as a plan and, and we need to accelerate further yeah yeah and um and yeah are there any are there any quick fire ways or, or what do you need to do in order to accelerate them what what are are there any kind of are you having to use new toolkits and uh um ideas and suggestions just to accelerate that at this stage now i guess and that's the billion, if not a trillion dollar question. But my take uh, when I see that, I like to go back um, in, in history and history usually teaches us a lot of things. And it's not the first time we're transitioning out of a system-based 
and well established based on the use of animals to the use of technology on a much more efficient way. We have seen that with labor. We have seen that with energy. We have seen that with um, transport, right? So, and across all of them, um, we we can study and see and realize very quickly that all the doubts and all the questionings, they were always present. A car, when it was launched, um, you know, they were horseless carriages, not car. <laughs> and they were... Um, the, the the talk of the town is that that was a fad that you know they needed smooth roads and infrastructure they were pollutant they would break down horses are so way better and trustworthy and you develop that bond with your horse and you can feed a horse and much easier than you can feed a car engine right um, back then there was no network of gas stations and you needed well-paved roads which uh, if you go back in time without well-paved roads and say that suddenly you need well-paved roads in the millions of miles around the world and people just say like, look, this is never going to happen. It's just too expensive. And you needed it to be better. Not, not It was noisy, it was pollutant, it would break down. Um, and the horse was just great, right? And then that transition is not easy. That's what we're seeing right now. So I like to go back in history and see what has caused the transitions and what were the frictions and what were the accelerators. Usually it's a combination of technology improvement, education, policy, um, and investment. And also um, the the cherry on top of all that are great companies that put it all together and uh, come with a disruptive, great product, well communicated, well distributed, available to grow. And what's happening right now with EVs, with Tesla, exactly that. It's not the only player. It's not arguably, as a mechanical engineer, not necessarily the best car across all dimensions. Um, but it's definitely disruptive. And it has incentivized and changed the world in a way that every other car manufacturer started looking at it and building it. Now, uh, it's becoming the norm, yeah. right? Electric cars in some places like Norway, 70% of new cars are sold are electric. That, that, that's what history tells us and what I like to believe that we have to do as well. Yeah, great. Andre, I could talk to you all day. I really just wanted to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a wonderful uh, pleasure to talk with you. So thank you so much and best of luck for the future with Next Gen Foods. Thank you so much, Simon. It was great being here with you. Thank you.